you like audiobooks or audio shows, check out a free trial of Audible. Just click the link in the description. Welcome to Mindshack True Crime. This is your host, Bruce McGuire. And Maxwell Powers. And he, we are here with Maura Murray, part 28, an earlier accident. Maxwell. What the? Yeah, we're on episode 28, and apparently we have not spent enough time discussing the possibility that there was an earlier accident before the reported one at the Weather Bard Corner in North Haverhill, New Hampshire, or New Hampshire, should I say. <laughs> okay. So, once again, if you like our podcast, you can donate to our PayPal. Just check the link in the description. Make sure you subscribe to the channel. Hit the bell for notifications. And if you like the podcast, hit the like button. Feel free to share it across social media. You can also like our Facebook page and check us out on Twitter, Reddit, and Patreon. So, what do you know about the earlier accident? Because we did discuss it a couple times on a couple podcast episodes, but we never really went into it. And some of the new developments in the case, and even if there weren't any new developments in the case with the cadaver dogs and the house location, supposedly not far from the accident site where Mora could be located or someone else or another victim of a crime or not a crime. We don't know. Could just be a body. We don't know the circumstances. Of course, we're not going to assume anything, but that may or may not have something to do with Mora's case. But if it does, we might be able to solve some of the riddles and conundrums in this case that we can't seem to explain away. So any thoughts, Maxwell, was the accident earlier? Is that why there are so many inconsistencies with the witnesses? You know, um, I forgot what the early accident is. I think it was the Corolla, right? Is that what you're talking about? Like he, she crashed <laughs> the... I forget. I forget no, what no. happened. Oh, Maxwell's new to the case. It's only episode 28. It's all right. The Corolla <laughs> accident with her father's car was in Hadley in Massachusetts on Saturday. That had nothing okay. to do... That had nothing to do with the Monday because she she went back to UMass. She spoke to her father on the phone Sunday night. And on Monday night, that's the day of her accident in Haverhill. I'm talking about an accident that could have occurred about a half an hour earlier than the one that Butch Atwood drove by and the Westmans called in. Oh no, kidding! Um, you don't remember it? Yeah, wait, 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 wait. Yeah, but yeah, but it's not it's not her accident. It's someone else's accident. Well, we don't like, know. It could be her accident. That's the that's the whole point that I just introduced like two minutes uh, ago. Okay. What if the real accident happened about a half an hour earlier, and that's why none of the timelines add up? If you haven't checked out our previous episode, Witness X, we go over on all the different witness testimonies on what went down. On Wild Amanusac Road, Route 112 in North Haverhill, New Hampshire. And why are there so many differing accounts? And why do law enforcement seem complicit in a way? Not necessarily nefariously. Maybe they were trying to help more. Again, I always bring this up. But the illogical people out there think that I'm automatically implicated. Or anyone who automatically says conspiracy, people conspiring... They might be conspiring, they might be lying, and they might be doing it for a good reason. We don't know. That's the whole point. That's why an honest investigation is focused on uncovering the truth. 
not being dogmatic or biased in any direction, either pro-police or anti-police. And once again, the fallacious reasoning of people accusing John Smith or some of these other researchers of being anti-police, it's not anti-police. We're talking about one or two or three, maybe four individuals specifically. If they're police officers, they're police officers. But why, why conflate and fallaciously associate these ideas and these false dichotomies and all these fallacies that for some reason there's just a very heavy online presence of people that seem to have a vested interest in moving away from the truth or shutting down avenues of investigation that we seem to see popping up again and again, especially on other podcasts or on certain oxygen shows and spokespeople for said so shows. But uh, and their malicious attacks on John Smith and Fred Murray for some reason, even though they disguise them as trying to stick up for Fred Murray when a lot of what Fred Murray says has been specifically against what these narrative steerers are promoting. So this all started with a witness overhearing a call on a scanner for the earlier accident. This witness is well, we'll call her Anne. That's what she's called. Um, I don't know if her real name has is known or has ever been released, uh, so we'll just continue with calling her Anne. But before we get to that, I just wanted a quick reiteration on the condition of the Saturn, because some people don't bat an eye at her driving the Saturn up. Here is another post by Peabody, which is supposedly Sharon Roush, Billy Roush's mother. So this is what she posted. What is known but adds to the mystery of Mora being in her car in New Hampshire is that the Saturn was having serious mechanical problems. She had been sharing rides with a fellow nursing student to clinicals. Both of her jobs were within walking distance from her dorm. Another close UMass friend has stated that she was shocked that Mora was so far from campus in her car because she would not even drive it to the grocery for fear of becoming stranded which is what happened only a short time before the semester began. At that time, she had called AAA, and per her dad's suggestion, had AAA tow the car to UMass to remain there until they could trade it in. So it seems that there were no plans to drive it at all, just that it would sit. And if, if what, is, what Sharon is saying is true, if she wouldn't even drive it to the grocery, would she drive it to the ATM? Would she drive it to the liquor store? Would she drive it out of state? It seems like no. So I don't know who this close UMass friend is. Uh, not named, but if, the, if what they're stating is true, that she would never get in the car, and the car was never even have been planned to be driven again. It was going to stay in the lot until they traded it in for a new vehicle. So if that's true, what are the chances that she would drive it? So the rest of the post is this. Last year during that time, there was a great deal of snow, ice, and cold temperatures. It would only be reasonable that she would not want to be stranded. What is not clear is what motivated her to get in a car she feared to drive locally and drive a distance taking over three hours. And someone else, not Sharon, posted it had been reported by her campus friends that she had not driven or started her car in three weeks. I don't know who these friends are. I don't know if that's true, but apparently the car was towed in January. We went over this on the UMass podcast. So if you haven't checked out the silent UMass episodes, part one, part two, part three, 
You can check those out on the channel and we go over a lot of the details with the AAA situation and the vehicle some more. But just to quickly go over this again, does this seem like Mora would actually drive her car out of state? Um, good point. Um, I don't think so. If a car is having trouble, especially if you're, yeah, especially if you're a girl, I mean, I don't know, that's, that's rough. You get stranded somewhere, you get in trouble. Yeah, it's 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 pretty rough. And also, I'm not sure what kind of battery was in there. It'd be interesting to see because I know in the winter, if you don't start your car for X amount of time, it's not going to start. You're going to have to jump it, you know, depending on how many cold yeah. cranking amps the battery has. So three weeks in cold temperatures, depending on how old and, you know, obviously the older the battery, the more issues there would be with it. So She's got a 96 Saturn in 2004. When was the battery last changed? And how much cold cranking amps does that battery have? And that could actually determine when we could make a guess. So if it really hadn't been started in three weeks, or maybe she didn't know that it was started in three weeks, because if the key was on the tire or wherever, because she had locked it in the... Once again, we went over this. That was part of the reason they had to do the tow. But uh, they needed the keys. So if the keys were on the exterior of the vehicle, anyone who knew that could have taken the vehicle. So, for example, the Patrit Vassi hit and run. If, if someone took her car and hit Patrit Vassi, she might have not even known about it until the call. So maybe she didn't drive it for three weeks, but it was driven. But just some things to ponder. Also, one more thing. Another strange. We're going to go over this in an anomalies podcast, but I'm going to drop it here. Do you know who the fire chief of Haverhill in 2004 was? I do not. Mike Lavoie. Do you know who that is? Oh, is that a, is that from a Stephen? No, wait. I don't know. I don't know who that is. Lavoie is the toe is the guy that got called for the toe, even though he wasn't on rotation. Oh, uh, okay. He also happened to be the fire chief at the time. I don't know why nobody has ever mentioned this. So if the fire department, so what does he know and why was he called? Because McKean, that's the guy that was supposed to, he was on the tow rotation. So either Monahan or Cecil or who knows who called in the tow. They called Lavoie, even though it was supposed to be McKean and McKean showed up on the scene pissed off because he lost money over the tow. And then earlier in the day, he had pulled Cecil out of a ditch or Williams or however that went down. If they switched vehicles, we'll have talked about that endlessly. I'm sure you remember all those details, right, Maxwell? Uh, no details at all. <laughs> Maxwell Army. <laughs> all right. So here's a post by Frank Kelly, Weeper. He posted this August 20th, 2008. Hello, all. To answer... Your question about a volunteer fire department meeting on the evening of February 9th, 2004, there was in fact a meeting and a training session at the firehouse that evening. In fact, there were about seven to nine firefighters who responded with and on one fire truck to the incident. At the Weathered Barn, soon after Sergeant Smith responded. Now, we need to interview all of those firefighters, do we not? <laughs> I mean, it, kind of a coincidence, there was so much going down that night. And uh, obviously, we'll be getting into that in the Anomalies podcast as well. But so there was a fire department meeting. The fire chief happens to be Lavoie. 
<laughs> who got called for the toe who's not on rotation. <laughs> I mean, you can't make this stuff up, can you? <laughs> I mean, the coincidence stack is a mile high. And if you put that on top of the fallacy stack that other researchers, the Oxygen Show, the other podcasts, like a lot of these other personalities in the case, even James Renner, the fallacy stack that they're operating with, then we got a coincidence stack on top of the fallacy stack. How, how far away are we from the truth right now? Hmm. Um, can you repeat all that stack? <laughs> well, you'd have to watch if you just watch, if you just listen to the previous twenty-seven episodes, you'll you'll get a good idea. <laughs> that's like that's like thirty hours of podcasts. Yeah, you better take some notes. I mean, you were on those podcasts. Jeez. <laughs> uh, well, just so, Fra- so Frank Kelly. Wait, who's Frank Kelly again? <laughs> Oh, man. So he was one of the private investigators early on in the case. Okay. He provided a lot of info. I mean, we discuss him. We discuss him almost every episode. Okay. This is his post. So he's putting forth this information. And he said, it makes perfect sense to send out a bolo, a be on the lookout to volunteers over their CBs and to all the citizens who listen in on these calls as well. More eyes on the road looking for a wandering female. Which brings me to remark on the previous posts that suggest the police department in Haverhill were in any way connected to Moore's disappearance or abduction. At no time or in any way have I or any member of our PI team ever suggested a rogue cop or cop wannabe was behind the crime. The most that was suggested was that the incident was not handled properly from the start. The physical condition of the Saturn would have alerted any competently trained police officer to look for skid marks and debris on the roadway in the immediate area. There wasn't any at that location. To this day, the media and most people think the car skidded off the road into the snowbank and hit a tree even knowing the Saturn was facing away from the snowbank and trees. In fact, the actual location of the Saturn was not at the tree with the blue bow on it. The location was another 100 feet east of that tree. Hope this eases some minds that we, the PI team, are not putting the crime disappearance on the citizens or officials in the town of Haverhill. Respectfully, Weeper. So a couple points here. So Weeper does, Frank Kelly has connections to law enforcement, of course. So. Let's say he really thought that law enforcement would have something to do with it. Would he ever publicly state that? Probably not. Exactly. So the, the backlash is too much. Exactly. So some of these cognitive dissonant trolls, they always point to, well, nobody would ever say that. Of course they wouldn't. I mean, it doesn't take that much common sense or logic to realize that, that even if that's what these investigators believe, and I'm not saying that's what they believe. I'm just saying if they believed that, I don't think they would come out and just state it like that. I think they would drop little clues like out of commission, <laughs> like zero zero one was out of, or they would drop all these little clues that didn't hit the tree and, and kind of maybe hide behind, oh, it was just officer incompetence. There's no malice or ill will. Let's say there was malice or ill will. How would they know they wouldn't? So it's, you know, it's kind of a neither here nor there situation. All we can do is look at the actual evidence instead of relying on hearsay, although we have to consider the possibility that the hearsay could be legitimate. So that doesn't mean you buy it or not buy it. You just objectively and honestly research every avenue. And that's all we're doing. So, okay. The other thing, there were tracks supposedly 
more so there were tire tracks on the Westman's lawn who they belonged to I don't know if that's ever been properly identified obviously Cecil Smith took photos at the scene they have never been released at the end of the podcast we will go over the tragic news of Cecil Smith's suicide that has been released and a lot of issues with that the case is pretty tragic all around especially how people are conducting themselves online and uh, elsewhere. But let's move on. So Anne, who reported the scanner call, she also said there, there was also another PI visited the area and they discovered two guardrails, two areas with guardrails broken. So one was east of the accident site, one was west of the Swiftwater Bridge, about a mile on, down on 112. So there's two possible locations. I don't know what we know about the guardrails. So Anne posted this on a forum a while ago. I do not think the dispatch times are wrong. I simply can't figure out what we heard. At the search in 2006, I got an important clue. When I met this other, actually, I don't know if there were a PI, this other individual, she told me the day after the accident, she drove to where it was and around and found where guardrails were knocked down. She said she heard about it on the radio and decided to check it out herself. She said she got out and walked around looking for pieces or anything or something of Mora's. Yesterday, going through some old stuff, I found an email or two where I asked her for more details. She never answered, but I have seen the picture she made pointing to damaged guardrails here. I guess it's just a little more to think about. And she's asking if other people find out when they were replaced. So she also said, I thank you for your input on guardrail damage. I have long believed that Mora's accident was somewhere in Woodsville for what she may have believed was a safe place, and that someone drove her car to ditch it, not realizing it didn't work properly, and unaware of the dangers in the route taken. Maybe yes, and maybe no. To me, it does not matter. As I truly believe she is not alive, and as time passes, this is only affirmed. I also believe Haverhill PD provided what was necessary at the scene with the exception of what has been produced since. With what they knew, they did an excellent job. Hindsight is a productive teacher. I will step out here and state that I truly believe that there was a previous accident before the weathered barn corner unreported. Mora may very well have an unknown missing link based in Amherst. I do not know. Speaking to another user, you woke me to the fact that what I have reported about the 7 p.m. call is important to solving the case. The 7 p.m. call happened as I have said, but does it really matter? I no longer think so. Mora is gone five years now, and to me, it only remains to find her body, not how it went down. I cannot continue in a venue that exacerbates the feeling of all of us, so I will stop posting. Okay. So let's go through the history of the scanner call. By the way, does the scanner call ring scanner call ring a bell at all? Or do you not recall this at all? Cause we mentioned it a couple of times. Um, vaguely, but you know, I'm, I'm interested in this guardrail accident. Did anyone take paint chips from the guardrail and like match it onto the car or what? Don't, I don't believe so. Or at least that's never been released. Those details. So if someone that, sh that should have been done, I mean, the, all these, 
all these people who listen to these podcasts should be going there, who, whoever's well, near there, and just. I believe they were either replaced or taken away at this point. I don't know if the the damaged guardrails are still there. I don't think they would leave them, but that's a good point. I mean, hopefully somebody did do that. So let's let's trace the history of the scanner call and all that that entails. So John Smith posted this. This earlier scanner call sure is interesting, and it fits into the earlier timeline of witness A and her seeing Haverhill Police Department SUV number 001 earlier than the 7.27 p.m. 911 call by Faith Westman. As far as the roads being, I see I don't think that was a concern of the person who heard the scanner call. And the person who heard the scanner call heard a vehicle had slid off the road. I'm not sure if this is where the icy roads may have come into the picture. But as Mr. Westman has stated, who lives right on the weathered barn corner, the roads were as dry as a summer's day. I think the scanner call that Ann heard was actually the Saturn, and it was in front of the Westman's house at the weathered barn corner. But the Westman's did not call because the vehicle was moving and they saw a person near the vehicle. That's pretty crazy, right? Yeah, but so so they're assuming that they didn't call because they think that they someone didn't called. call for X amount of time. He goes on to state, I think that the Westman's means did not think the accident was that bad, so did not call 911 until they realized that the vehicle was not leaving the scene. And then they realized they had to do something. So, okay. All right. So I would, I would give that, what, 10, 15 minutes? <laughs> Well, apparently they gave it close to a yeah, they gave it close to a half an hour. But here's what's crazy. Here's what's really, 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 really crazy. So, regarding Tim Westman's statement that the roads were as dry as a summer's day, here's the thing. So, a lot of people cast suspicion on the Westmans, and it's justified in certain ways. And then they also closed that, like they don't want people parking near the area at memorials and all these things. And some people have suggested that they act shady in certain ways. I mean, all depends on who they are. If that's their standard MO, then it has nothing to do with Mora, and that's just the way they are. We don't know. Everybody's got different per temperaments and personalities. But if he's lying, wouldn't he say that the roads were icy? Because then that would lead more credence to the Saturn hitting a tr spinning out and hitting a tree. Like, why? If he's lying, why would he tell the truth about the road condition? Or why would he even answer at all? He might just say, I don't remember. Like, it seems like he went out of his way to say the road, or unless that was in the time period when they were still telling the truth, if they were coerced or gagged at some point. I don't know. What do you think? Hmm. Wait, wait, who are we talking about right now? <laughs> Tim Westman. Oh, Tim Westman. Oh, okay. The the people in the house. Um. Well, no. Okay. Did you not? He said that the road was as dry as a summer's day. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. If he's lying, he said, so if they think it hit a tree and he's, in on the he's in on the cover up on the lie that the Saturn spun out and hit a tree. Why would he say the road was as dry as a summer's day? He would either not answer or say that it was icy to, to corroborate the official storyline. Ah, that's right. That's interesting. I like that. <laughs> so he wouldn't. He wouldn't. It, was, it would be unless, that, unless the, the the summer's day thing would be the honest uh, account. Unless. Of the, so there's uh, the only explanations I can think of. There's three explanations I can think of. One, he's not lying about anything. Maybe he just has memory problems like Maxwell. Two, <laughs> two, this he, they were honest up to a certain point when a gag order was implemented by either New Hampshire State Police or whoever. FBI, we don't know. Whatever the situation was, whoever silenced them or not police the guilty party who just intimidated them, who 
may have ties to police or lied to the locals saying they have ties to the police when they don't to intimidate them. I don't know. So, or the Westmans were forced to lie, but he slipped in that clue on purpose. <laughs> what do you, what other, what other reasons can you think of? Wait, what, what, what do you mean by your last point? Like he, he put it in for, to, for, to like mess with people. <laughs> no, <laughs> like to, man, Maxwell. you said, no, you said, you said like you, he put that in for as a, as, as a, a clue. clue. Yeah. So because if he was threatened, he would have to give the appearance that he's going with the official narrative, which he knows uh, wrong and lying, but he just added that little speck. That way it doesn't sound too <laughs> suspicious. <laughs> That's too smart. I don't know. Oh yeah. You don't think Tim Westman's a smart guy? Is that what you're <laughs> I don't know, man. All right. So John Smith also states this in a couple of the very early articles, it is stated that there was an earlier passerby that had called in the vehicle off the road. This was before Faith or Butch called. It is unknown who this person is, of course, but I personally feel this person could have the answers to a lot of questions that have gone unanswered for 13 and a half years. So it could have possibly been law enforcement. And we'll get into that in a few in a moment we'll, when we dissect some of this some more. But this person, so because Faith Westman did say that she was the third call, that there were two other people that called it in. So that well, the other one would be Butch Atwood, but who was the who was the other one? So was it a person walking by, driving by, or was it law enforcement? We don't know. So the okay, so the 705 call that was overheard on the scanner, it's not in the Grafton County dispatch log. Now, once again, uh, John Smith addresses, remember, I have three different copies of the Grafton County Sheriff Department log, and the one that has the space missing is where the call would have been. So once again, we've talked about this before, when you're releasing logs, if you redact, you black out sections, you don't delete sections. So, and then say it's the official transcript. So it seems like it was unlawfully altered and not officially redacted. So if someone's messing with the logs, once again, it could be for a good reason. It's not necessarily nefarious. If all of this is involved in some other case, people's lives are at stakes, there's CIs involved. None of this means a law enforcement conspiracy does not mean it was for evil. It could have been for something good. We just don't know what it is. So it looks more nefarious than it is. There's many different explanations. If you're doing it, once again, you're doing an honest investigation. You got to ask all the questions since you don't know the answers. Okay, uh, now he's talking about, and I met the person who heard the scanner call back in 2005 and have been friends with her ever since. I completely believe her recollection of that evening. Not sure what to say about the scanner call. The only thing I can think of is if she actually did hear the call made by Faith Westman, because this might make sense, that could explain the 13-minute delay in toning out the fire department and EMS. So there was another call. You ready for coincidence? You ready for the coincidence stack? Sure. There was a vehicle in a ditch, a woman with a child on John Smith Hill Road. <laughs> no relation to John Smith. <laughs> so this was at 630 and that was cleared at 705. And it was suggested that EMS was not needed. So this is a separate event. And John Smith Hill Road, of course, is an hour away from the accident site. So, and this other instance was supposedly near to Mora's scene, but not in the logs. 
and only heard on the scanner. So once again, the narrative steers, and I guess the illogical, the, the either the illogical thinkers or the narrative steers, they don't want to have anything to do with this earlier accident. So they're all pushing that this was simply this woman in a ditch and Anne was confused. What do you think? Um, I mean, if, uh, I don't know. I mean, if they, if they could prove that, you know, there was no one, it was not, uh, what's her name? Uh, Mora. <laughs> the one, the podcast. Wow. That <laughs> you low, Maxwell. You wait, so, so, wait. Mora, okay. So, oh man. So do you know who Mora Murray is, Maxwell? Of course. But anyway, like if they could prove that it wasn't her, then I, I'm, then there is justified that they can leave it, but. Right. Are you ready for an even crazier theory? Are you ready for a mind shock, Maxwell? Yep. Okay. So one of the other things that Anne overheard was that there was a third call for law enforcement to go all the way to the scene. So that would put 001 passing witness A. So if the first call out was for law enforcement, EMS, and fire to the scene of a girl off the road, then would that match up with witness A seeing the 001? So what con of course, what, what complicates matters is that there's several Swiftwater locations. So there's Swiftwater Road, Swiftwater Circle, and Swiftwater Village. <laughs> I mean, this whole thing is a mess. But here, so if the girl in, so what Ann overheard, the girl left in a private vehicle. So law enforcement, but law enforcement was called to, quote, go all the way to the scene, end quote. So if 001 passed witness A the first time is actually the second time law enforcement was going to the scene and they turned around and went back to the scene. So if there was another accident, the Saturn was elsewhere. Someone informed 001 around 7.27 p.m. that the Saturn was now currently located at the Weathern Barn. Now law enforcement is going back in the other direction, passing witness A the second time. So, Anne also stated that law enforcement was looking for a girl with a certain description before 7.27 p.m. So does that explain that accurate bolo when they didn't even know the, the driver of the vehicle? So if the earlier accident did happen with an either a law enforcement vehicle, we could say drunk Jeff Williams, we can say 001 and whoever was behind the wheel, if it wasn't Williams, if it wasn't Cecil Smith, if it was somebody else, that was the earlier accident. Did she flee from the earlier accident? Did she get in a vehicle at the earlier accident site and someone else was disposing of her vehicle? If it was even Mora, if it wasn't Mora, whoever it was, if they got into an accident in this earlier timeline, they left and someone else continued getting rid of the car? We don't know, but could that explain it? Anne also said that the chatter had led her to believe that the girl, quote, might have died, end quote. But it seems they knew exactly who they were looking for before 7.27 p.m. H how do you explain that, Maxwell? Um, I can't, but, uh, yeah. So, okay, wherever the original accident occurred, if 001 was involved, and that's when the Saturn spun out or went off-road into the ditch, if 001, if it's Jeff Williams or whoever, had been drinking and driving and they left the scene, 
And then someone called it, maybe hoping that no, I, I don't know what was going on. If he's drunk, I guess it goes, everything goes out the window. But if, but if he heard the call and then came back to the scene, and at this point, whoever was in the car, Moore or someone else, somehow got out of the ditch and drove away. If 001 no longer sees the vehicle at the original location, but now that Saturn has damage that wouldn't match the resting spot beyond the near the Weathern Barn corner, that damage could have occurred at the at the earlier accident site. So now, if if who the driver of zero zero one might be panicking and wants to find the driver in the vehicle, and this is when witness A saw zero zero one. And if 001 is frantically driving around looking for Mora going up and down different roads, is that why he passed Witness A twice? Because he didn't see the Saturn. He was trying to catch up to the Saturn. And here's where it could get nefarious, because if, if he's catching up to the Saturn and the Saturn spins out or gets out of control, either because 001 clips them or it's just panicking by seeing the same vehicle that caused the earlier accident, but 001 could have cut through the Westman's lawn and went nose to nose with Mora's vehicle, with the Saturn. Maybe 001 intimidates Mora and says she won't be in trouble, but he might be, so he has to leave. And then he leaves the scene. But the question is, what happens to Mora or the driver of the Saturn? We don't know. Any thoughts, Maxwell? Um... I'm trying to understand the problem, and, and and it's not it's not getting in. So, witness A witness A saw the car twice. We spent we spent how much on this in the previous episode? I don't know, man. But but so she he saw it she saw it twice, and uh yeah yeah that's all I got. No, she saw it. Well, she saw it three times. It passed her twice, and then she saw it nose to nose with Mora's car, with uh, with no people around. Because when she passed the scene, she saw it there. So she saw it three times total, twice while it pa- it passed her twice, and then it was. At- we spent how m- we spent we spent. Quite Wait, where what where where was this one? This is not the the. How far is this one away from that thing? The where Mora's car was found. This was on the way there. Didn't you did you watch the episode? The maps are all on there. Not that far. Okay. Several minutes of drive time and then she passed the Saturn with 001 nose to nose with the Saturn. So everything I just said was if there was an earlier accident and 001 was chasing Mora to the final resting place of the Saturn or whoever the driver of the Saturn was. No thoughts, Maxwell. No thoughts. No. <laughs> okay, so here's another post from. Andy. Well, 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 let me ask you this: What, what do you think the the problem is? Cause just, just, just get to it, because I'm not understanding this fucking logistical problem here. Well, it kind of hinges on the previous 27 episodes of discussion. So summarize it. Witness <laughs> A saw zero zero one pass her twice while she was driving from work to acro- across one twelve. The middle of the journey is roughly the middle of the journey where Mora, where the Saturn was, she saw the Saturn nose to nose. Obviously, law enforcement said, or 
whoever related. Wait, nose, nose to nose to zero zero one. Yes. Okay. See, I didn't get that. Okay, because uh, I thought it was well, like that's, she that's was kind of that's, that's an almost that's an almost irrelevant detail of the whole thing. She just saw zero zero one there. That's irrelevant for the point I was making. It could be very relevant otherwise, but to the exact point I was just making, she saw zero zero one pass her twice. So I'm just saying, if there was an earlier accident and zero zero one uh, was chasing the Saturn and he wasn't sure where the Saturn went, he'd be going uh, up and down a bunch of roads, and that could possibly account for passing witness A twice. Uh, I see. Gotcha. Um, but, but but she didn't see the Saturn with zero zero one. She did. Oh man, you're killing me. Man. What? Wait, wait. What? One time? Just one time out of those three times, though. Ah, so. <laughs> oh man, Matt. I think you're getting I can't worse. Remember. With each, I think you're getting worse with each episode. There's there's too much like going on here. I don't know. Or maybe it's just me. It's definitely just you. But uh, <laughs> there is there is a lot going on. But so episode one, you'd be justified in not knowing what was going on. I you know. But episode episode twenty eight. I mean, that's a little rough. But uh, I think okay. I don't know. All right. So. She she saw the the Saturn nose to nose with zero zero one when she drove by the weathered barn corner. Okay. So she's driving by the road, which is the resting spot for the Saturn. Okay. And she sees zero zero one there. So okay. the implication early on was that Cecil was in zero zero two. Don't tell me you don't remember anything about zero zero one versus zero zero two controversy. Um, a little bit, Cecil. Yeah, gotcha. <laughs> Oh man. So anyway, for the so for like the tenth time, if there was an earlier accident, does that explain witness A witness A's account? Yes, yes, yes. Okay. So you do so, understand. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I got you, got so you. So here's another you. post from Anne, the woman who overheard the scanner call. After the accident on February 9th, 2004, and all the chatter and then talking to my friend, I was, because she was listening to the scanner because she was worried about her friend getting home. So I was simply relieved that she was home and it was a minor accident, it seemed. I never gave it a thought until a couple weeks later, someone mentioned a missing driver. I felt she was fine as she left in a private vehicle, and I figured that when they had repeated the call and sent them all the way to the scene, that was to be sure no one was there since they had the be on the lookout. As a matter of fact, I never went to the scene until summer of 2005, so that's over a year later. I was surprised as it didn't seem right with all the houses around. After that, I thought about it a lot. People I asked simply said she had run away. It bugged me because it was such a complicated scanner call, and I thought initially, from the immediate young female description, that someone had been killed. My friend, whom I referred to that night, had moved back to Florida because she was nervous about the criminal element in the area. I laughed when she said that as she moved back to Miami. <laughs> I tracked her down in 2006, and she had racked her brain to remember more and could not accept my frantic, her words describing frantic, calls on her answering machine. Although she had left work a little late, about 5.30, she took her time as it had snowed earlier. She came up 91 North. She said the drive was fine, and she could have come the shorter way through New Hampshire. She also still remembers the drug dealings close to her home on Hill Road. Maybe as she headed towards Woodsville-Swiftwater is where she said she met returning rescue. 
She made that statement when I finally got a hold of her on February 9th. Honestly, that whole call has driven me crazy trying to figure out all that was said that night. It was so simple back when everyone was saying she ran away. I have not believed that since I unexpectedly learned the call was important in late 2005. So this doesn't sound like somebody making up stories looking for attention because she thought it wasn't even really important. So what do you make of Anne's account? She seems honest and truthful and, I don't know, she says it like it is. And it's interesting how she was listening to the scanner so for a friend to... Well, people in that area listen to scanners frequently. So a lot of researchers in the case, myself included, think that she might not have been the only one who have heard that. And for whatever reason, other people have not come forward. Especially, I think, either law enforcement or off-duty law enforcement or anybody working with law enforcement in any capacity or tow truck drivers in general, I think someone else could have heard the scanner call, possibly more than one other person. I mean, there could have been a, a couple people, more than a couple people who have heard this for whatever reason they have not come forward. All right, so let's just do a quick aside on Butch Atwood and the Westmans. So another theory, we're trying to make pieces fit. Let's see if this could fit. So a poster on that same forum that Anne was posting it. Okay, how about this one? Butch's wife sees an accident involving Mora at the Weathered Barn corner and calls it in, reporting that Mora's leaving in a private vehicle. That is the call that Anne hears. Maybe after Mora and the abductor leave the scene, another female, the abductor's accomplice, backs the car hard into a snowbank, resulting in the Westmans hearing the loud thump. They see this and call the police, but it is sometime later than the original reported accident and call that Anne heard. Butch arrives home a short time later, finds the female or other figure who was still with the vehicle preparing to ditch it, knows that person, fears that person or someone related to them, or is paid off by that person, aids that person in getting away somehow, either by letting them back on his school bus, either by letting them on the school bus and backing further down his driveway so the person could get out the back and escape into the woods, or hiding the person and later driving them somewhere else when he goes out searching for Mora. Okay, Butch then goes to tell his wife to call police again he, if he doesn't know that she called before or calls himself while listening on the porch to the scanner traffic about the incident he may have just become involved in. You can even take it a step further. Maybe Butch is involved from the start and the person waiting with the car after the Westman's call is simply waiting for Butch to arrive. So he or she gets in the backseat of Moore's car to wait and smoke a cigarette, matching what Faith Westman reported she saw, or that person gets into the back to wait to avoid being seen and being out in the cold, but left the window open to allow that dust stuff that comes out of the airbag to clear and had his or her cell phone out to match what Mr. Westman reported he saw. Another possibility we didn't just discuss, if Butch Atwood, I think we might have actually discussed this, we discussed a plethora of theories, if Butch Atwood was the one that was involved in the earlier accident and he's chasing the Saturn driver down. 
I mean, obviously that would implicate. I mean, maybe it was an accident. Who knows? Maybe I like I like the theory with the um, the bass backing up because I've always I've always wondered what like because he always pulled in like he, like uh, that nose first. Yeah. Right? Yep. And it was the first time ever that he backed his bus into the driveway. And I always wanted an explanation for that, or like a theory at least, you know. That was kind of cool. Yeah, it's, it's pretty rough. All right, let's, uh, someone else posted this about, a, about the Westmans. I don't know why I didn't think of this before, but does anyone find it odd that the Westmans didn't walk over to the Saturn to check on the driver's condition? They must have known it was a cellular dead zone and the driver would not be able to call anyone. If the dispatch times and their recollection of the time they heard the loud thump is right, they watched out the windows for 27 minutes before Faith Westman finally called 911. Interesting point. A seriously injured driver could have died while they watched and did nothing. I find that bizarre. Well, also keep in mind... Other witnesses have said there was at least one other witness who said that they saw people by the car. So the West, the, one of the theories, we actually discussed this, if the Westmans actually did go out to the scene with or without Cecil present or another officer present, if it was an earlier officer, and for some reason the story changed after the fact. What do you think about that? Um, think about what? <laughs> Maxwell Army. The, well, so, so at least one, there were one or two witnesses who claimed to have seen bystanders by the Saturn with police. So the Westmans could have gone out to Mora's car. We don't know. They said they didn't. Nobody else said it. But what if they did? Ah, uh, I see. We discussed hmm. this several times. Yeah. Uh, I don't remember, but uh, I personally <laughs> would, have gone, would have gone out if I saw a car in freezing weather. Well, I forgot how cold it was. It was only like 30, right? Or it wasn't that cold that day. All right, here's, okay, this is going to really blow your mind. There is another witness, which we might have only mentioned once briefly, that definitely deserves more time. Supposedly a hospital employee recalled being passed by Cecil Smith at 7.10 p.m. And that would have put him at the weathered barn earlier than Faith Westman calling in, which is interesting. That might be the smoking gun. Let me read this full post. Please blame me for the post you've seen regarding times that vary from the known dispatch time. Here's my explanation, which is a copy of what I just posted on topics. The reason why I adjusted the dispatch times by moving them up 20 minutes was to see how that might affect the theory that the Saturn was in an earlier accident and the theory that the red pickup truck may have picked up Mora. Does the red pickup truck sound familiar, Maxwell? <laughs> the red truck? We did a whole oh, yeah, I love, I, love, I love the red pickup truck. Okay, all right. Remember something. Yeah. Cool. You still remember who Moore is? I remember now, yeah. Okay, cool. For quite a while, I've been puzzling at the apparent discrepancy between witness recollections of times and the dispatch times. For example, the Westman said they heard the loud thump at 7 p.m. or a little after. But according to dispatch... Faith Westman didn't call 911 until 7.27 p.m. We know they watched the scene from their window for a while before she called 911. But did she really wait for approximately 25 minutes before she decided to dial 911? I decided that the Westmans must have been mistaken about the time they heard the thump. 
I had the same problem with the information that Anne heard over the radio. Although the information that she heard seemed to be an accurate description of the accident on Route 112, halfway between the Weathered Barn and Bradley Hill Road intersection, including the report of the female driver leaving the scene in a private vehicle, it couldn't have been the same accident because she heard it around 7 p.m. I've doubted Weeper's theory that the report Anne heard was a description of a previous accident because we haven't found any reference to it in any log and the whole idea seems a bit contrived. I had the same problem with the hospital employee's recollection of being passed on Goose Lane by Sergeant Smith at 7.10 p.m., which would have placed Smith at the Weathern Barn accident before Faith Westman reported it. I finally asked myself, if three independent witnesses, the Westmans, Anne, and the hospital employee, could have each been mistaken about the right time, i.e. 20 minutes earlier, or was the dispatch time 20 minutes late? Since all of the facts reported by those witnesses and other witnesses sync perfectly with the events noted in the dispatch log, but for the 20-minute gap... I decided maybe the simplest answer to the confusion caused by the disparate times is the dispatch log's timestamp was running 20 minutes late. I must add that I'm not very comfortable with that conclusion because I've never heard of a police dispatch office being off like that. All right, what do you think about that? So this theory is that everybody's telling the truth and the timestamp is 20 minutes off and for whatever reason people got married to that innocently because they didn't want to admit that it was wrong and then that's where all the confusion comes from i find that highly unlikely what do you think uh agreed not to mention like deleted sections of logs so many different versions of logs i mean it's yeah there's something shady definitely going on so the plot is about to thicken even further i don't know if you're ready for this maxwell Okay, let's do it. <laughs> All right. Let's go to John Smith's blog. Something rotten in Haverhill, New Hampshire. So he put this blog post up on December 10th, 2015. So he attempted to match the three witnesses timeline. So, and we'll get into this. Two people here the 7.05 p.m. scanner call. A car in a ditch on Swiftwater Road. Driver left in private vehicle. Law enforcement, fire department, and EMS called back to the station. So I guess, so were they called there and then called back because the driver left in a private vehicle? I don't know. But that's allegedly at 7.05, and on the timeline that's up right now, at 4.30 is the Saturn en route to New Hampshire. We don't know who the driver is, of course. Okay, at 7.15, Witness A leaves work in Woodsville, taking Swiftwater Road east towards 112, and Witness A lives in Lincoln. 7.20, Witness A is passed by SUV-001, heading east towards White 112. Blue lights were on, no siren. Witness A loses sight of 001. At 7.23, Witness A is on 112 heading east and is passed again by 001, also going east towards the Weathern Barn corner. And once again, Witness A then loses sight of 001, which is obviously 001 is going fast. 
At 7.26, witness A arrives at the Weathern Barn corner to 001 parked nose-to-nose with a dark car, but does not notice any people by the vehicles. Witness A proceeds east and calls home from Beaver Pond, as always, when in cell range. Once again, you can check out our previous episode for a full in-depth breakdown on witness A. Uh, At 7.27, Faith calls 911 after hearing a thud and an acceleration. Remains on the line with 911. You know what's interesting? If witness A passes by at 7.26, that means she passed before Faith Westman made the 911 call. And if the vehicles were already stationary, then the sound, the thud could not have occurred afterwards. There's a problem there, isn't there? Interesting observation. So at 7.33, Atwood pulls up on the scene and besides the Saturn and blocks Faith Westman's view. This is according to John Smith's blog. So he's saying that Butch blocked Faith's view for a certain period of time. Again, I guess this might lead credence to the theory that Mora might have went on to the bus. I don't know. Atwood is there three to four minutes. That's a pretty long time to have a conversation. And that's also a long enough time to probably identify someone. And keep in mind, Butch originally said that it was not Mora. Because she had her hair down instead of in a bun or up in some fashion as she usually wears it. So he drove home and then his wife calls 911 at 743. He is outside in his bus at this point with a good view. So, John Smith is stating that Butch Atwood does have a view of the accident scene. It has been stated in certain sources that he did not. Okay, here's another point that John Smith is making. Mora asked a person that stopped to offer assistance if they would call her a tow truck. So this would not be Butch Atwood, which is kind of weird. Okay, Sergeant Smith arrives on scene and is driving 002 sedan. Nobody is at the scene at this point. Smith goes to the Westman and Atwood residences to ask where the girl is. Once again, this theory would line up with the earlier accident, because if there was an early accident and they already have more identified, they'd be asking about the girl. Otherwise, they'd be asking about the driver, right? Right. Okay, and so Cecil calls in the bolo at 7.54 p.m. Now, right before that, at 7.50 p.m., this is witness B, Susan Champy, who leaves work in Lincoln at 7.20 and arrives on the scene at 7.50 and notices the 002 sedan parked near the Saturn. The passenger side door of the Saturn was open in the westbound lane. So, and once again, also the Marat, Marat saw the taillights on the vehicle on. So it seems like the vehicle was moved at least once, if not twice, after its final resting spot. And then EMS and fire department arrive at 756 and 757. Okay, so that's John Smith's timeline here, which is very, very interesting because earlier reports do seem like there could have been another witness to have seen Mora other than Butch Atwood. Now, if that was at the Weathered Barn Corner or at the previous accident site, we don't know. And once again, it could have just been the witness to the driver, not necessarily Mora. So what do you think about all that? Uh, It's interesting. 
So here's his post underneath this timeline. Please note that the above timeline is created from witness statements and all times are subject to plus or minus one or two minutes. This is a very tight timeline, but Mora disappeared right in front of the 911 witnesses. So somebody saw something. Anne and her husband were two of the many locals with scanners on February 9th, 2004 at 7 p.m. The initial scanner call said a young female had slid off Swiftwater Road. Okay. She turned the scanner volume up to listen closer. So once again, we're not talking about something on farther in the background. So it seemed like Anne was vested in this call and actually turned the volume up, if this account is correct. Quote, no, there was no victim at the scene, end quote. Police were also returned. This 7 p.m. call is not on the sheriff's report. Anne was very concerned as she was expecting a friend to be arriving from down south. The friend lived on Hill Road just across the Swiftwater Bridge, so when Anne heard the call, she became worried. She called her friend's cell phone two times with no answer. Uh, parentheses, no cell service, question mark, question mark, question mark, and parentheses. Anne waits a few minutes and then calls the landline of the friend and gets in touch with her and is so relieved. The second scanner witness, uh-oh, uh-oh, the second scanner witness is a 24-hour-a-day listener that lived off Valley Road close to the scene, and when interviewed, he stated he heard the call at about 7 p.m., for Swiftwater Road, as well as the call to return all apparatus to the station. Call indicated the car had slid off the road, but the driver had left in a private vehicle. Witness also recalls hearing the 727 call by Faith Westman for the accident at the Weathern Barn corner and thinking, oops, the corner got another one. And it's not even snowing. When will people learn to drive? Witness recalls hearing Officer Smith H2 signing off at the scene at 746 and then hearing the bolo put out at 754. He continued to listen and heard when Smith cleared the scene at 926. So Witness A was passed by 001 SUV cruiser on Swiftwater Road and then again on Route 112 east of the stage shop store with blue lights on but no siren. This would mean that 001 had taken Cemetery Road off of Swiftwater Road and reached Route 112 at the Swiftwater Bridge area and then proceeded east from there, passing the stage shop store and coming across Witness A again. A comes up on the scene and notices 001 nose-to-nose -nose with the black Saturn. This was just about 7.30 p.m. Atwood stops at the scene, blocks a view of the car from 911 caller Faith Westman. Atwood offers assistance to the driver never getting out of the bus, only speaking to the female from the bottom step of the school bus. Atwood is there for about three to four minutes and then proceeds to the east a few hundred feet to his house, at which point he goes inside and asks his wife to call 911, giving her the info she needs to do so. He then goes back outside to his bus to complete paperwork. This would have been around 747 or within one minute of that, either side, because Atwood has stated Smith was there when he went back out to his bus as well as he was approached at his bus by Smith. Remember, Atwood has stated that several vehicles passed by the scene as he was in his bus but could not recognize any of them because it was too dark. 
Witness B, Susan Champy, that worked in Lincoln and was heading home to Woodsville, had left work at about 7.20 p.m. and arrived on scene about 30 minutes later at approximately 7.50 p.m. As Susan was approaching the scene, she first noticed blue lights, a dark-colored car in the eastbound lane, but headed west and then saw the passenger side door of the Saturn open and the cruiser parked just west of the Saturn in the westbound lane closer to Old Peters Road. She also mentioned seeing a couple bystanders as well, but no sight of fire department or EMS at the scene. This would mean that Champy arrived upon the scene after 7.40 and before 7.56 because Atwood was not at the scene anymore and fire department and EMS had not arrived. I'm going to interject another point here because if we trust Champy and Witness A, that means the SUV 001 was nose to nose with Mora. So if that was her, if that was Cecil, nose to nose with Mora, why would he, why would there be a 002 sedan not parked nose to nose minutes later? Something doesn't jive, and the narrative steers and the illogical commenters on the case, as well as some big time. Uh, journalists and researchers or people who assert themselves as such push forward a nothing-to-see-here narrative regarding any kind of possible law enforcement conspiracy or cover-up, or even not. Maybe there is no conspiracy or cover-up, but what? But they don't believe that the discrepancy between the 001 sedan nose-to-nose and or the 001 SUV nose-to-nose and the sedan not nose-to-nose, they don't think there's anything to see there, which is kind of weird, don't you think? Yeah, it's kind of weird. The truth is not afraid of investigation. So why are all these people afraid of asking these questions? It's weird. Okay. On February 20th, 2004, Seacoast Online reported this. After the accident, witnesses said she asked them to call a wrecker, Scarinza said. We are reasonably confident that she did not enter the woods near the accident site. That area was searched several times. The accident scene was in sight of several homes, although the area becomes remote after that. Skarinza said she did not seek help from any of the homeowners, so it may be that she accepted a ride somewhere, but he said there is no indication that anyone picked her up. There is no evidence of foul play either, he said. So that's kind of weird that she that Skarinza stating witnesses said she asked them to call a wrecker. So that's kind of weird. That's kind of weird. Also implying more than one witness. So did he just mix that in with a possible earlier witness, if that's law enforcement, who she's told to call a wrecker, and then telling Butch that a wrecker was already on the way? So did they just mix in Butch with this other witness? I don't know. So here, John Smith's post goes on. So referring to the last paragraph, Atwood was not asked by Mora to call a wrecker. So seeing nobody else at the Weathern Barn Corner supposedly came out to help or stopped at the scene, who are the witnesses that were asked to call a wrecker? Were the witnesses that were asked to call a wrecker not at the Weathern Barn Corner, but actually came across the first accident on Swiftwater Road? So 001 was traveling east on Swiftwater with blue lights on, passing Witness A at approximately 7.15 to 7.20 p.m. Where was 001 headed at this point? There is no 911 call from Faith yet, so he is not responding to that call. It only makes sense that 001 was still responding to the 705 scanner call 
of car slid off the road on Swiftwater Road, even though the call had been canceled because the driver had left the scene in private vehicle. Where was the first accident on Swiftwater Road? Why was the Grafton County Sheriff's Department log manipulated to lose the 7 p.m. timeline? Why was 001 SUV still responding to a canceled call? Why was 001 SUV at the Weathered Barn Corner nose-to-nose -nose with the Saturn? Why did 001 SUV, more than likely driven by Chief Williams, not sign off at the scene? Where did 001 disappear to before Officer Smith arrived? How did the 911 callers and witnesses not see where the driver vanished to? There is something really rotten in Haverhill, New Hampshire, and it did not just start on February 9, 2004. It has been ongoing for years, and people just deal with the stench. The lies and deception of law enforcement and locals in Moore Murray's case started at about 7 p.m. upon arrival to the sleepy little hamlet of Haverhill, New Hampshire. There is so much more to this case than meets the eyes. Then he leaves a definition of bystander, a person who is present at an event or incident but does not take part. All right, what do you think about that? That's uh, very interesting. So the other bombshell that he dropped is it wasn't just Anne, and I'm going to drop another one. There are three total people that overheard the 705 scanner call. Not just Ann, and not just this other guy. It is actually Ann's husband who can corroborate this. So Ann has, admits that she doesn't have perfect memory, but she says that her husband is a pretty good witness. So here is her post. I wanted to add that even after these five years... I asked my husband yesterday about the time. He is the one never late. Been married to him 40 plus years. If he would swear to the 7 p.m. timeline, and he said yes. At 7 p.m., we heard the first emergency transmission. I appreciate the objective opinion in this sense. It forces me to be very accurate here because as the pressure has pushed higher to divert from this side of things, it becomes important to be as accurate as I can muster. So we have not just Anne and her husband, who has sworn to this time, unless Anne is lying, then we can remove her and her husband. But there is this other scanner witness who John Smith has mentioned. But like I've, I've postulated, I think there's even more than these people. And for whatever reason, they either didn't come, they, they weren't comfortable coming forward. Maybe they forgot about it. Maybe they moved out of the area and just didn't feel the need to come forward after the fact. They don't follow the case anymore. I mean, there's a lot of options, but I'm thinking there's got to be at least a couple more people that have heard it. What do you think? Uh, definitely, because uh, you said everyone listens to scanners. So Not everyone, be... but... Well, a lot of people. people. Yes, up there. Okay, so someone asked Anne if she kept her phone records calling her friend. Just to corroborate all this, she, uh, they stated this. Maybe we can clear this up. You mentioned calling your friend three times, I think, before 7.30. Do you remember how long after you heard the scanner call you called your friend? And can you dig up the phone bill to check the times? Did you call your friend before the Westmans called 911 based on the published timeline? She responds, I got on the phone almost immediately to my friend. I do not know if I called her before the timeline of the Faith Westman call, but I believe so. I never saved the bill because one of the joys of life is throwing out bills when paid. 
LOL. <laughs> okay, here's another thing. So depending on what the police said to Faith Westman, Faith Westman was referring to herself as one of the three calls about the accident in the interview. We mentioned this in the previous episode. So if the police mentioned to her that there was an earlier call, she could have just been going offhand. Uh, saying that she was one of three based on police information, or maybe she personally knew the other person. So that might explain that. But here's the most important point about all of this, all of the whole time. And keep in mind, Art Roderick and some other people, how they get incredibly triggered whenever anybody questions the official timeline. Like, if, if you're really out for the truth, and why would you have a problem with people asking any kind of questions? The timeline should always be questioned because it's critical. And yeah. he reacted in such a triggered, childlike, tantrum-throwing way, the same way Maggie does about a lot of things, same way Renner does lately anyway. It's, it's just it's so weird how, uh, how a lot of these people in the case, the podcast guys, Tim and Lance, like they just go crazy in trying to attack John Smith or anything that questions the official timeline. I find that kind of weird. Do you find that kind of weird? Yeah, because <laughs> you're just covering, I don't know, whatever. That's kind of weird. How everybody, nobody wants to talk about the timeline. It's so weird. And the way they want to, also the manner in which they want to shut down timeline talk, I think is very telling. Because if they really didn't believe it was important, and maybe they don't, maybe they're just all very childish, I don't know. But if they really didn't mind it or, or didn't want to talk about it, that's fine. There's a neutral way to kind of say, oh, that's not important. We don't want to talk about it. But their reactions in trying to shut it down and the emotional manner in which they do so, all while trying to pretend they're in this for, you know, Fred's best interest or Mora's best interest. I mean, I might as well say this now, and I know a lot of people aren't going to like this, but I have talked to several people close to Fred and some of the other researchers in the case. and. A lot of what these trolls online and even the other podcast and Maggie are saying is definitely not true regarding John Smith. And the family and they're they're pretending that the family's pissed off about what John Smith is doing. It's actually the opposite. The family's pissed off at all the online trolls trying to steer the narrative. So it's just kind of weird seeing all their posts kind of in support of Fred or saying that John Smith or other people are doing bad things or trying to piss them off. There's people who are very close to Fred. They know the truth and you know, nobody has to trust me. I mean, you could just, you can go on Facebook, talk to some of these people. They're pretty open. Obviously I'm not going to say any of their names, but including during the, the vigil and the anniversary of the disappearance, these people talk to both Fred and John in the same room Everybody's happy. Everybody gets along. Nobody hates John. John was personally invited specifically to these scenes. Like all these things that are said against John are just obviously blatantly false. And you could talk to people that are in the same room with photographic evidence that are in the same room with Fred and John, and they will tell you the same thing. <laughs> so all this made up nonsense online trying to discredit John and steer the narrative, it gets very obvious at a certain point. So why that is, I mean, the listeners can come to their own conclusion on why there's so much vested interest in to steer away from examining the timeline, from investigating every single angle of the case. I mean, you can even see how desperately people try to support law enforcement in delaying the search of the house where the cadaver dogs hit. 
And obviously, I mean, any objective, logical thinker, I mean, John Smith might be wrong about everything. I don't know. I'm not going to blindly defend anybody or assume anything. I'm just stating what different people state and logically examining the information. I'm not pushing anything as true or not true. But if law enforcement, look at the reaction. They still haven't, they still haven't searched. So was John Smith right in releasing this publicly? So now everyone can see that law enforcement didn't search. So he's putting more pressure on them. And I'm not going to say what Fred's wishes are or are not, but one would think that Fred would want this to be done as soon as possible. So if John Smith is holding law enforcement's feet to the fire and trying to get it done as quickly as possible, whose wishes is he following? And if he wants to hold people accountable, again, this doesn't mean there's a law enforcement conspiracy. This doesn't mean the police are covering for other police officers. We don't know what it means. It means question mark. But it seems like John Smith made the right choice in releasing as much info as possible as early as possible so that there's transparency and accountability, something that there has not been from day one. And maybe that's one of the reasons the, the case still isn't solved, which is really sad. But closing all of that out, here's the most important point of all this. Everybody continues to make a big deal out of how Mora vanished in mere minutes when everybody happened to look away from the scene. But what if that's not true? If there was an earlier accident and someone, possibly a police officer, did indeed actually see Mora leave in a vehicle, then there is no magic tiny window of vanishing, is there? Ah, I like that. <laughs> the whole case gets completely changed when you, if there's an earlier accident. I mean, it's all, all of the previous assumptions go out the window. And that's why we have to use logic and examine all these logical fallacy stacks, because if the first layer of a house of cards isn't as solid as it appears to be, if it isn't as solid as the propaganda has made it out to be, we need to reexamine all of it. I mean, that's kind of investigation 101, too. Like, if something's not working, you go back to square one. Why are some people so afraid to go back to square one and question everything? Because if it really is the truth. If the, if the official narrative is that true, what's the problem with going back to step one and corroborating the official narrative? It's just so weird how there seems to be all this vested interest against doing that. So also, this isn't the end of Anne's information. So she posted this on December 31st, 2008. I have a friend who feels sure she saw Mora in Woodstock in 2005 with the exception that she had darker, almost black hair. There was even a poster on a, at a store there to compare this sighting, and still the only difference to her seemed to be the color of her hair. It reminds me of the long, dark hair Butch Atwood noticed. So then someone obviously asked her, did your friend report this? If you saw someone who looked like a missing person, you would think it would be reported as soon as possible. Even if it isn't the person, it's better to be wrong than to make an assumption. Anne responds, she did. There was another family member with her, and they made several calls about it. No one ever got back to them. This was in May 2005. This girl seemed nervous and anxious to keep moving and went into an apartment. They went to their car and looked up and saw her watching them, and she was on the phone. Then she moved away from the window. So this was a Mora sighting that I've never heard reported before. This is coming from Anne. This is the first time I've heard of it. I just found this on, the, on a forum with Anne's posts about a lot of different things. What do you think of that? It's interesting. That's all you got? 
So I guess. <laughs> Max Alarm. So, okay, it seems very unlikely that Mora was hanging out in Woodstock for more than a year after her disappearance. Locals would have surely spotted her more than one time, more than this one time. And especially with her father and other people searching up there, it seems like it wasn't her. Although, on the other hand, I mean, do you think that would be a good place to hide out because you would think no one would look for you there? <laughs> I mean, that's see, that's a little bit too that's a little bit too spy thriller for me. Like, I don't know. That, that's reaching a little bit. So, okay. Once again, I'm going to ask if it really was Mora up in New Hampshire. So here's an interesting post from a forum member dissecting witness identification, and it's really interesting. So here's the post. We know that the primary cause of wrongful convictions of people later proven innocent by post-conviction DNA testing is mistaken eyewitness identification. That sounds like Stephen Avery. <laughs> the most reliable eyewitness identifications occur at lineups. But errors still happen even if the most elaborate precautions are taken to avoid suggesting to witnesses that police have a suspect in custody and the suspect is one of the six people in the lineup. The least reliable eyewitness identification or method with the highest error rate is the single person show up, which can happen in one of two ways, either by arranging to show the suspect physically to the witness or by showing the witness a photograph of the suspect and asking the witness if the person depicted in the photograph is the person the witness saw. When Mr. Atwood was shown a photograph of Mora and asked if the woman depicted in the photograph was the woman he saw behind the wheel of the Saturn, he would have assumed that the police were showing him a photograph of the registered owner of the vehicle and expecting him to identify her as the driver. No one in Mr. Atwood's situation would have reason to believe that he was being shown a photograph of someone whom the police believed had nothing to do with the case. The suggestibility inherent in the single person show up coupled with an eyewitness's normal desire to assist the police by confirming their expectation usually produces a yes, that's the person response. Unless the person depicted in the photograph bears no resemblance whatsoever to the eyewitness's memory of the person he saw. Given this context, I believe it's significant that Mr. Atwood qualified his identification when he said the driver's hair was shoulder length and much longer than the person depicted in the photograph. He did not express the level of certainty that this method of identification usually produces, and this causes me to have less confidence in the reliability and accuracy of his identification than I otherwise would have. People who question the reliability and accuracy of Mr. Atwood's identification have a solid evidence-based reason to conclude that he may have been mistaken, and that's before considering any of the circumstances present when he saw and briefly spoke to the driver. If I were a prosecutor asking myself if I could persuade a jury beyond a reasonable doubt that Mora was driving the Saturn based on Mr. Atwood's identification, I would conclude that my chances were slim to none unless I had other more persuasive evidence upon which to rely in presenting my case. In other words, the argument that who the hell else could it have been if it wasn't Mora isn't evidence. It's just an argument doomed to fail without other persuasive evidence that Mora was behind the wheel. This is an illustration of a trial lawyer's way of evaluating a case. Namely, what do I have to prove 
which is dictated by the elements of a statutorily defined offense in a criminal case or the elements of case of action in a civil case, what's my burden of proof beyond a reasonable doubt in a criminal case and by a preponderance of the evidence in a civil case? And how am I going to satisfy that burden of proof. Based on the evidence available to me, I do not believe there is sufficient evidence to convince anyone beyond a reasonable doubt that Mora left Amherst on Monday, February 9th, 2004. Personal belief is a far different matter. At this point, I'm not sure what I believe given the lack of information, but I know that I'd sure like to know who was driving the Saturn and why she was driving it if Mora wasn't driving. So once again, let's not get into black and white fallacies. Maybe Mora was behind the wheel at the first accident site, and maybe she wasn't at the second, and the accident sites might not be that far away from each other. If that's a possibility, that could explain a lot of things as well. But I'm also not going to make the assumption that she did indeed leave Massachusetts, because I don't know. What do you think, Maxwell? Uh, agreed. All right, are you ready for another mind check? Yeah. All right. I, I touched upon this briefly earlier, but let's let's try to get to the bottom of Butch Atwood's inconsistency. Let me propose another theory. I briefly mentioned someone had a post that kind of alluded to this, but there might be more than meets the eye here. What if he let Mora on the bus? What if she was in the bus when he went out pretending to search for her and that's when he actually dropped her off somewhere? Under this hypothetical, if he knew local law enforcement were either incompetent or shady or couldn't be trusted for whatever reason, if he's the good guy here, maybe his mom, who volunteered or worked for the police, told him about the kind of officers that were around, which was either true or untrue, it might have made him think or act a certain way. Or if Butch is the bad guy... Or simply a scared guy helping a criminal, whoever was trying to get rid of the vehicle if it wasn't Mora, might have asked Butch to wait in his bus or for, them, for him to hide them. And they either did that and slipped away or Butch gave that person a ride somewhere and dropped them off while pretending to look for Mora. And that could also account for his, uh, some of his sketchy and conflicting testimony throughout. What do you think? Uh, that's, that's interesting. That's all you got? That's all I got for now. Maxwell Army. All right, so let's get to uh, Cecil Smith's suicide. So I'm sure you've heard the news, Maxwell. Yeah, um, I was wondering if you were going to talk about that. So Yeah, people have uh, apparently on the night that he committed the suicide. Or hold on, I'll, I'll read his obituary. Uh, so here's his obituary. Cecil Smith. 65 died Wednesday, February 20th, 2019 at his home unexpectedly. He was raised in North Haverhill and was a 1971 graduate of Woodsville High School. He attended Plymouth State College, graduating with dual degrees. He was fluent in both Chinese and Spanish. He served in the U.S. Army as an intelligence officer from 1972 to 1992. During that time, he was stationed in California, Texas, Hawaii, Maryland, and twice in Korea. He retired in 1992 as a major with the Airborne Rangers. Returning home to North Haverhill in 1995, he joined the Haverhill Police Department and retired from that career in 2010 as the Chief of Police. He had a strong interest in renewable energy and tinkering. He possessed a very driven personality. Okay, so... Yeah, February 20th, they, people, locals overheard the gunshot, that there was a gunshot at his house, and it was a suicide. Now, 
I'm not sure how they determined it was a suicide, and we're not going to go down all the crazy rabbit holes, but he's not the only person associated with uh, the Maura Murray case to have died. There's been quite a few people, including uh, Conrad, who supposed that there were rumors that he had information and he was gunned down in his driveway, an unsolved murder. And, you know, what's really strange is, I mean, I, I would hope that local police would do a proper investigation. And if there is no conspiracy, you know, they would test the residue on his hand and the gun to determine that it was really a suicide because it's always alarming whenever, because suicide is a very popular way for people to try to get away with murder. I mean, you hear of all these really scary cases where people commit suicide. There's no note or there's an online type note. We don't, I don't, we don't know if there's a note, if it's a handwritten note, no note at all. And, but it's, it's pretty scary to think about because if someone was to murder somebody, I mean, we're not even talking about Cecil here. We're just talking about when people murder people, sometimes they stage it as a suicide. Uh, I didn't really have that initial reaction. I'm not for or against that theory. I just kind of heard the news. Very tragic, of course. Um, either way, it's tragic, whether it was suicide or murder, masquerading as suicide. I really don't think, it seems kind of strange and highly unlikely that somebody would kill him, especially because he had a neurodegenerative disease. Uh, I think we mentioned that when we were discussing the Oxygen Show transcripts. But what does that tell us? So obviously I've theorized many times that he might have been the good cop in all of this. And he might have been trying to save Mora against possible bad cops, either McKay, Williams, Monaghan, whichever theory goes, or somebody else, or just a local or a police impersonator. Cecil might have been the good guy scrambling amongst a whole bunch of bad guys, and he didn't know what to do. So there's a lot of possible explanations for all this without Cecil being complicit in anything. Uh, maybe Cecil really couldn't remember. We have no way of knowing when symptoms of his disease started to appear. If he really did get lost on his way to the accident scene, as was claimed, even though his father lived near the site, how do we know that wasn't the truth? Obviously, that brings competency issues to the table, but maybe he wasn't lying and it wasn't nefarious. Maybe other officers or individuals pretending to be officers or other crazy locals or the parties responsible took advantage of his condition. And he was an unwitting assistant to a conspiracy if indeed one took place. If they knew that he had a neurodegenerative disease and so did he, and depending on how the symptoms manifest, I'm not an expert in the disease, in these diseases, he might be prone to just agreeing people when they tell him something because he knows he can't remember. I don't know. Or he might really feel adamant that a certain memory is true when it's not, and I don't know. But did Strelzen take advantage of Cecil Smith? Did he make him say something he didn't want to say? Did that all take a toll? We don't know. Did how much if there was a conspiracy and he was the good guy and he was pressured to keep quiet about it, we don't know how much of a toll that could have taken on his psyche. Uh we really don't know. So his degenerative disease could possibly explain the oxygen interviews, it could possibly explain some of the strangeness around the case if he was indeed the good guy. I don't know. What do you think? It's anything's possible. But yeah, anyway, I mean, the news about the, uh, it just seems unlikely. Some of the conspiracy theorists out there, of course, are alleging that he was responsible and that he couldn't deal with it. And that's why he committed suicide. But that just doesn't seem likely because, you know, the lead was put out a while ago. 
you know, November to December. So it seems kind of, uh, I don't know. I mean, what do you think? If you were responsible for a crime and you didn't, you couldn't deal with it, wouldn't you? And there was new evidence about it. I mean, it's not like they dug it up. If it was either at the time the info came out or they dug it up and it really was Mora. I mean, it seems kind of just a random time to do it. It seems like it's more likely linked to some kind of neurodegenerative disease. And I believe Maggie had uh, previously stated that even at the time of the oxygen interviews. So I guess that was her way of explaining his strangeness in the interview or that he seemed very, very nervous as if that was his disease. But here's the thing. If, if Strelzen compelled him to say certain things or compelled him to even do the interview, like why do the interview? If all these people, if this, if law enforcement knows something, I mean, they would have put a lot of stress on him, especially somebody with a degenerative disease. If they put a lot of stress on him, I mean, that's, that's not good to do to somebody with a degenerative disease. Cause I mean, think about it. If you're, if you're really, if you're completely, un- I mean, I don't know what motive did he have? If he really, if he really was the good guy that gives him motive to go on the show. But then again, if he's being compelled to say certain things, I don't know. What do you think about all that? Nothing. You got nothing, Maxwell? Um, no, it's true. Um, I agree with you. So, yeah, I mean, very, very tragic. Our condolences to his family and the families of everybody associated with Morris case. I mean, Morris case is just tragic in, in every single way for, for Fred and, and Morris family and, and for the families of other people who, who've passed along the way. But we hope this episode has shed more light on a possible earlier accident. And reiterating again, we don't know what happened. So this is all just theorizing. And once again, the truth is not afraid of investigation. If you like the Mind Shock podcast, you can donate to our PayPal. Just check the link in the description. And make sure to subscribe to the channel. Hit the bell for notifications. If you like the video, hit the like button. Feel free to share it across social media platforms. Any questions, comments, criticisms, requests for cases, or aspects covered in this case, feel free to leave that in the comment section. Make sure to like our Facebook page. And you can also check us out on Twitter, Reddit, and Patreon. This is Bruce McGuire signing off. And Maxwell Powers. We'll catch you guys next time.